I can talk about Schopenhauer and show off my legs at the same time. This is the Gospel of Musical Theater, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theater Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. Here he is, boys. Here he is, world. Here's Peter Elliott. Sing out, Nathan. This is your striptease. Oh, I, well, you can tell because you we're on That's Zoom together. Hallelujah, Peter's gonna give it to you. Okay. <laughs> I just took a glove off. I mean, here, here we just, just enough though. Let's let's be ladies about this, as as Mama Rose would say, right? Give them just enough to leave them wanting more. That's um, that might be the <laughs> that might be the motto of this podcast. I'm thinking about Schopenhauer. I don't know about you. Um, <laughs> I don't know what you're thinking about. I'm thinking about Schopenhauer. Yes, indeed. <laughs> So well, I'm, I'm Nathan. This is Peter. We're ready to we're ready to launch into Gypsy. Uh, Gypsy. Peter, tell me tell me about how you first uh, how you first encountered this material. Is this a show that you grew up knowing? I didn't really know it until I saw the uh, Rosalind Russell movie, um, a movie that was uh, that we won't say much more about than than just uh, uh, she wears she wears here. black gloves. Is that is that Arthur? That's standing? apparently what Arthur Lawrence uh, when he asked. What did you think about Rosalind Russell in the movie? He said, we can say she wore black and white pumps. And that's about oh. it. <laughs> well, we can we can say that. Poor Rosalind Russell. I mean, gosh, I, I, I rewatched right. My Girl Friday over the, over the Christmas holidays. And I mean, she is such... One of the things I suppose we'll probably be talking about for this entire episode is uh, women of that generation who broke the molds in some yeah. ways and rosalind yeah. russell is one of those one of those actors really broke she's a she's a huge talent so huge yeah talent. i uh the first my first encounter with this outside of knowing the music the music was ubiquitous uh jack parr in the what uh, the early tonight show uh hosts used everything's coming up roses as yeah. His theme song, um, Small World, was around. Some People was around. Uh, but I, I, I saw the film on an old black and white television with my parents sitting in the sunroom. And they were singing along to the tunes because the tunes are great. And I was sitting there thinking, this is about a stripper. And this mother <laughs> is nasty. And oh, my God, what are we doing watching this thing? But... It wasn't until uh, seeing Bernadette Peters on Broadway in 2003, I guess, uh, that I saw a live production. But what's your, tell me about your... Yeah, I, I'll, similarly, I think I saw the film in, in high school or, or college. I remember, I remember watching the film because it, it felt like something that I needed to know about. I knew some of the, kind of like you, I knew, I knew a few of the songs because they were standards. I remember hearing Bernadette Peters covered some people on one of her early concert albums. And she talked a little bit about... Um, you know, kind of growing up in, I think she was one of the Hollywood blondes. That was one of her first roles. Um, so I was aware of, of the material. I had heard her do some people. I knew enough about the context to know that. Saw the Rosalind Russell film. I don't really remember that much about it. Um, but then saw Patti Lapone. So she was really my first. Mm. Yours, yours was Bernadette Peters. My, Patti Lapone broke my gypsy cherry, if you like. Uh, she was the, <laughs> the first of the great divas to induct me into the, um, the club. And this is one of the things that you know that I want to talk about. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll delve in a little bit. The, the, the phenomenon of the diva 
and 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 really kind of you know Ethel Merman, but then every kind of great actor who has played Mama Rose down, you know, the, a role that is sometimes talked about as the King Lear for female actors, uh, singing singing actors who, are, who happen to be women, or at least you know mostly I think it's been played by biological women. Wouldn't have to because uh, in some ways Mama Rose is a drag character as much as as she is. I agree. Else. Yeah. Um, but what is the what is the appeal? What is the draw? Why are gay men so obsessed with this show? I feel like in some ways it is a kind of being inducted into into something. That was my experience of seeing Patty Lapone in this role. I felt like I was being baptized, inducted into something that I, you know, in some ways that I wasn't entirely comfortable. You know, it's like there's a whole bunch of closetedness. Uh, performativity. I mean, there, there's something very dark, and I mean, and of course, it's you know, it's Mama Rose. She's basically an abusive mother. There's something very dark and sticky and uncomfortable about the world that we're being invited into. And also, I mean, some like it reminds me of the first time I walked into an Anglican church growing up as an evangelical <laughs> kid. And this, I mean, in an entirely different context, right? Feeling like I, I was hope. walking into the into the yeah, well, let's hope. well maybe, maybe not. The, the the through line here is people in dresses and, and a whole bunch yeah. of drag. But you know, there's incense swinging all over the place. I felt like I'd walked into a, a medieval monastery and was connecting with something that went way beyond me, and that you know, I'm connecting with my ancestors, but even more deeply than that. And to a certain degree, in a very secular sense, that was my experience of seeing Patty Lapone in Gypsy. Something is happening here that is that is cultural and I, I'm, and I'm a part of it and I don't always yeah. want to be a part of it, but boy, howdy, I guess I just am. And also, you know, it's also amazing. Like some, something about the mag, the, the energy, the magnetism of, of Patty Lapone certainly, but my son's is not just Patty Lapone, right? Betty Buckley, Bernadette Peters, Angela Lansbury, Tyne Daly, Bette Midler, all the way back to, you know, Ethel Merman herself, yeah. the, the, the Titans who have put their stamp on this, on this incredible role. And what what our and what our obsession uh, with this piece and with this role where where does that come from? That's one of the things that I want to think about. So yeah, and I wonder of... yeah, I wonder to what extent uh, this comes from. Now I don't know about Julie Stein, whether he's a gay man. I no, he's I think he's no. the one straight. He's the one, <laughs> one straight, straight guy in this uh, in this creative team. In this creative team, so we have Julie Stein, uh, but Jerome Robbins and Stephen Sondheim out of directly after uh, West Side Story. West Side Story has been a hit. Again, Sondheim gets asked to write lyrics. He wants to write a whole lyrics. show. I think initially, the, the, the invite was come and you know, do music and lyrics for this thing. And it was Ethel Merman who said, It was Merman not. who said, no, yeah. no, she didn't he like- He can do the lyrics, but not the music. Yeah. And so they got Julie Stein, who styled himself as more of a, a songwriter, a tunesmith than a yeah. Than a serious, I mean, we're a long way from Leonard Bernstein here. Um, we're, we're in but, but Ethel, pop Ethel culture. trusted Julie. I think she had, she had a flop in her, in her previous show and she knew Julie Stein knew how to write for a personality. And that's yeah. what she was looking for, right? Somebody who can write an Ethel Merman show. And you, who knows Stephen Sondheim, like, you know, he's a young kid, but she knew Julie Stein knows how to write for my voice. And she yeah. knew she needed somebody who could write for her. And, and boy, did he. And yeah. kind of taught Stephen Sondheim how to write for a star, which Sondheim says, you know, like it was one of the best lessons he ever learned and kind of admits, like, I prefer to know who's been cast before I write the stuff now, because he, his sense is writing for the actor is a much better way of creating the material uh, than writing, you know, writing for some, you know, he, he likes writing for Angela Lansbury. He likes writing for Elaine Stritch in Company. He learned all of that by writing for Ethel Merman in Gypsy. 
Yeah. And wrote uh, Send in the Clowns specifically for Glynis Johns. Yeah. Uh, something we'll talk about when we get into uh, Little Night Music. But they, uh, these guys, uh, these gay guys, uh, Julie Stein, not so much, were putting together a show about uh, a current celebrity, uh, Gypsy Rose Lee. Uh, she was, uh, Mama Rose had just died. She'd written her autobiography which was more fiction than fact, kind of uh, an amalgam of stuff. And they took that. It was Merman, who was at a cocktail party at Gypsy Rose Lee's expansive Manhattan townhouse, as the story goes. And at the cocktail party, Merman announced, I've read your book. I love it. I want to do it. I'm going to do it. And here's the best part. And I'll shoot anyone else who gets the part. Like, uh, <laughs> So Nicely done with the Merman impression. Well, Props there. Yeah. So we, we couldn't get through the first 10 minutes of this thing without a Merman impression. <laughs> so she was determined that she was going to star in this and then turned the, this autobiography of Gypsy Rose Lee over to these gay guys, is my point, Lawrence and Sondheim particularly, who took great liberties with what... Gypsy Rose Lee had already taken liberty with in her life. And so it is called, the real name of it is, is called uh, Gypsy, a musical fable. So it's not even, uh, although it's based on, in quotes, real life, it's a fable. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a bit of a fantasy. And just back to your point, is it a kind of, is it a gay fantasy? Yeah. Is, there a, is it a queer fantasy? Is this a queer uh, fantasy? Yeah. Is, yeah. This, is this a queer fable? And if it is, what is it trying to teach us? I think that, yeah. I think calling it a fable is a really interesting way of thinking about Gypsy. Because that, at least to me, suggests, I think about Aesop's fables, right? Yeah, yeah. there's, there's, there's going to be a, maybe a warning in this thing. Um, and I right. think, boy, if you, I mean... It's certainly not. It's certainly not a. Um, it's certainly not a happy ending. So thinking about this as a warning about show business, about I mean, we might say about what it means to be a woman in mid-century popular American entertainment, but maybe more broadly than that. And I, I agree with you. I think really, to what degree Arthur Lawrence and Stephen Sondheim are conscious of this, I don't know. But I think there is a kind of fable here for gay men, certainly of the mid-century. Who are we? How can we be? And how do we find ways to be who we know ourselves to be in a world that will that refuses to see us? I think there is a kind of lesson there. Yeah, and the the whole death of vaudeville and the growth of burlesque, yeah. um, and the growth of burlesque, and we can we'll we have, we'll we'll have lots to talk about with this, but the growth of burlesque in some ways was bringing sexuality out of the closet into. Maybe not the mainstream, but maybe just slightly off but, the mainstream. Yeah, just off. The, I mean, that's the, that's the thing that's so fascinating. I mean, just thinking historically about Gypsy Rose Lee and everything that she was able to do in terms of being, I mean, as you say, like a mainstream celebrity. She was the Kim Kardashian of her day. She was famous for being famous. But she was a burlesque performer who was able to, I think, kind of play, I mean, you know, she, she was, she's in the stage door canteen in Hollywood, for heaven's sake. You know, she's, she's, your parents knew who she was exactly and i think probably she wasn't i mean she was probably to a certain degree notorious but not a figure of um censure uh she was bringing sexuality into the mainstream in a kind of unprecedented way and being a 
a wisecracking dame, you know, well, dame, you know, a wisecracking lady, a comic, really. I mean, I, I, one of the ways I want to kind of think about Gypsy Rose Lee, she's basically one of the stand-up comedians of her day. She's, she's holding a, a, a baton that she's going to pass on to like Joan Rivers and down yeah. to like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and Melissa McCartney, a, a, a baton that she's received from Mae West, you know, some of these other yes. women who are using their sexuality in a very deliberate way as a source of comedy, which I think is how it gets, right? Like, as long as we're all laughing, we can yeah. be titillated by something, but it's quote unquote safe. Uh, there's a really interesting phenomenon here about women's bodies, women's sexuality, the ways in which they can be used as money makers, right? These are women who are hugely powerful and financially successful. The, the trade-off, right? You know, they, you, you, you lose something. I think Gypsy illustrates this beautifully, right? Like nobody gets married in Gypsy. Uh, there's a very deliberate rejection of matrimony and sort of traditional family relationships, we might say. But the trade-off there is you, you get to be a powerful person who happens to be a woman using your body and your sexuality in a certain kind of way. Um, there's something really fascinating to me about that. Well, I think the certain kind of way is playful. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's uh, her, her use of humor, uh, her distraction from, you know, exposing a little bit of shoulder, a little bit of leg, which is pretty much as far as she went. Heck, you see way more nudity on Netflix in a yeah. in even a PG program these days than you would ever have seen with Gypsy Rose Lee. Yeah. But sexuality was now in the in the in the arena of play as opposed to repression. Um, I mean, I think of my grandparents were born in the late 1800s, and sexuality was pretty verboten, just off the limits. My yeah. parents. Uh, born, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, were beginning to have a more open attitude, but even then, not so much. But yeah. Gypsy Rosalie, kind of, in terms of if we want to think about sexuality coming out of the closet, not just gay sexuality, but sexuality, human sexuality, all, yeah, <laughs> human sexuality. She was a teasing, teasing human sexuality out out of yeah. the closet. And making it kind of safe, kind of funny, but also kind still with an edge, right? Yeah. Oh, very much with an edge. Very much with a with a certain kind of an agenda. I mean, she's yeah. Gypsy Rose Lee is a political. I, she spoke at union meetings. I mean, for goodness' sake. I mean, there's that side of her, right? The, the part of her that was actually very politically engaged. But also, I think bringing some of that into, you know, I don't know if she would have identified as a feminist, but what she's doing, I think, is a. You know, she's. Uh, basically, you know, making fun, but also saying I can I can talk about Schopenhauer and show off my legs at the same time. And yeah, we're going to laugh at it because it's kind of funny. But also, like, I mean, presumably, I think Gypsy Rose Lee was a very well-read woman. Uh, there's a reason why she was able to make these references. She knew what she was talking about. So there is something really interesting to me around a woman's mind and her body and how those intersect and don't, and what men are able and willing to, I don't know, she's she's really poking the beast. Um, she's poking the and beast. Doing and doing something really interesting. Really interesting. And even though the musical is called Gypsy, it's about Mama Rose. It's about Mama Rose, yeah. It's so, really who, about Mama Rose. Who was Rose. born, what did she say? I was born, born too soon and didn't get started. There's, there's some line she says, it's after, you know, after Gypsy sees, Louise sees her mother kind of, you know, it's after Rose's turn, I think. Uh, I was yeah. I was born too soon and grew up too late or something, blossomed too late. Something, something like that. that. Basically, you know, she's she's acting out her own kind of fantasy 
around what it means to be a powerful woman through her daughters. That's what I think that's kind of the, you know, that's the bread and butter way to understand this, understand this show that Mama Rose is the force that, you know, propels two, two women actually into very successful show business careers. June kind of gets dropped in the musical, but not, not in real life. June Havoc had a, had her own career uh, simultaneously to Gypsy Rosalie. So, I mean, you know, something about this woman historically is pretty amazing because she launched two pretty incredible performers. Um, and clearly herself wanted to be on stage. At least that's what yeah. you get by the end, but her, her, I want song, I guess, if, if, uh, yeah, uh, some people uh it's her anthem and and she sings it right after the overture and just uh comment that the overture is one of the best overtures maybe it's the best overture. Yeah. yeah just yeah. fantastic all brass um, it's all it's ethel somebody somebody that I, I that i listened to talked about it as ethel merman in orchestration right all of the brassiness <laughs> everything you know and and not everybody you know not everybody was a fan of ethel merman to this day not everybody's a fan of ethel merman uh the people who came to gypsy were you know presumably right they were coming to see ethel merman and the orchestra gives you right off the bat right like everything you can expect. And in some ways it's like, um, it's foreplay. It's getting you ready for what she's gonna do. Um, yeah. and, in, and in amaze, I mean, the trumpet riffs at the end of that overture are just astounding. It's, it's an astounding overture. It, it lost out at the Tonys to The Sound of Music uh, and Ferrello, the musical about uh, the former mayor of New York. Oh, yeah, uh, which I and, don't think anybody does, does anymore, but there no. we are. And she lost to Mary Martin playing Maria, uh, Merman yeah, did. The two, and said, the two great divas uh, of, of their generation. And it's in some ways, it's a little sad that they were up against one another, but there you are. Merman apparently, when she lost, said, how are you going to buck a nun? I'm sure yeah. it was Buck that she said. I'm, yeah, right. I'm sure it was. That sounds like the kind of language that I'm like. Ethel Merman, to, I mean, to her credit, a good Episcopalian, right? Born born and baptized in the Episcopal Church. That's where she first started singing, was in the pews of, I think it's Holy Redeemer in, uh, in Astoria, Queens. So she's uh, she's she's one of ours. We'll, we'll, and we'll claim her. Both <laughs> we'll claim in her. her. Both in her brashness and in what I what I want to, I, I don't really know that much about her spiritual autobiography, but let's let's assume that she got some good religious training and that there was a uh, there there was there was the Holy Spirit is at work in Ethel Merman. Let's just let's just leave it there. But in some people, her "I Want" song, which uh, I think uh, Sondheim's lyrics 
just shine out since this is a series on Sondheim. When she sings, uh, some people sit on their butts, got the dream, but not the guts. That's living for some people, for some humdrum people, I suppose, though, they can stay and rot, but not for Rose. Uh, brilliant. Some people can get a thrill Knitting sweaters and sitting still That's okay for some people Who don't know they're alive Some people can thrive and bloom Living life in a living room That's perfect for some people of one hundred and five but I at least gotta try when I think of all the sights that I gotta see yet all the places I gotta play all the things that I gotta be yet come on Papa what do you say some people sit on their butts got the dream yeah but not the guts that's living for some people, for some hum drum people, I suppose. Well, they can stay and rot. But not wrong. I mean, here's a songwriter. Here's a lyricist in Sondheim who I think has moved beyond being pretty and witty and bright. In, in her I Want song, in some people, I think we get immediately, immediately in Gypsy, a sense of who this woman is. Yeah, yeah, it's, he's, he's writing for character uh, and really coming into his own as a songwriter who has learned how to write for a character. This is not Sondheim's voice, this is Rose's voice. And he's, and, he, well, and, and to a certain degree, it's Ethel Merman. I think he's using the phenomenon of Ethel Merman in a really interesting and deliberate way, right? Knowing audiences know who this, who Ethel Merman is as a sort of larger than life show business character. So in some ways, like that's how, at least at the beginning, like that's, that's how we're kind of to understand Rose, right? She's a brash, undomesticated, not foul mouth necessarily. Rose has got a kind of an interesting kind of puritanical uh, thing running through her, but certainly she is not anybody's sweet ingenue romantic partner, right? There, there, there is going to be a love story in this thing, but it's, you know, she's going to be wearing the pants, if you like, in that love story. I know that we have a small world is, I guess, where we kind of pick that theme up, right? Uh, where here we're kind of very deliberately uh, switching the the boy girl trope. It's a love song sung by the woman to the man. You know, she's courting Herbie in in Small World, right? She she's absolutely in control of herself as a woman, as a uh, as a as a what a, a financial <laughs> instrument. Uh, she's she's in control of her purse strings. She's in control of her daughters, and she's decided. You know, she's been married. She said to her, you know, I've been married before. I'm not interested in. You know, it takes a lot of butter to get me back in that frying pan. She's not interested in married, marrying Herbie. She never does. But she is interested in what he can offer her, we might say financially, in terms of, of the girls and the work. But I, I think there's also a, a, an indication that she um, she's into him sexually. I mean, I think that she, she longs for the companionship, physical and, and, uh, and, and emotional, that he provides for her. Um, so she's, you know, she's telling him, this is how it's going to be. This is what I want from you. And Herbie, that's what Herbie gives her until he doesn't. Funny, you're a stranger who's come here. 
come from another town. Funny, I'm a stranger myself here. Small world, isn't it? Funny, you're a man who goes traveling rather than settling down. Funny. Cause I'd love to go traveling Small world, isn't it? We have so much in common It's a phenomenon We could pool our resources By joining forces You're a man who likes children That's an important sign Lucky I'm a woman with children Small world, isn't it? In so many ways, she's a forerunner of uh, a liberated woman. Um, She knows what she wants. Uh, She takes control of situations. She does it in an abusive way. And that's not necessarily part of what it means to be an empowered woman, of course. But I think, you know, I mean, I always had this sort of ambivalent relationship with Mother Mama Rose. I mean, I kind of hate her at one level and I find her behavior cringeworthy. I kind of curled up in the seat when I saw, you know, what is this? And at the same time, really admire somebody who can sing, you know, we have so much in common. It's a phenomenon. We could pool our resources by joining forces from now on. I mean, there it is. Uh, it's partnership. I mean, what she's, it's a partnership. Yeah, it's partnership. We're, I mean, do, maybe not equals. I don't think she's offering. To, I mean, she's. I think she's saying, "I'm going to be in charge of this partnership, Herbie. You're going to have to come out on my terms." But it, I mean, in the context of a world in which it is expected that the man's going to be the driver of this thing, there. I mean, you know, she she really is upsetting an apple cart here, which is. I mean, you got to her credit. There's a fearlessness and a courage and a resiliency to this woman that is remarkable. And I wonder if that's part of the fable. I wonder if part of the fable is a bit of an object lesson around the changing nature of uh, male-female relationships, an object lesson in a negative way about what a mother's fierce love can do. And here we can go back to Sondheim's own autobiography because he had a very troubled relationship with his mother. Yeah, who who was abusive? I mean, certainly, certainly emotionally, but there's there's a hint that maybe sexually as well. Um, he a, a very a very fraught. And actually, he tells a story. Somebody asked him at one point, you know, like is how how much of your mother is in Mama Rose? And he said, well, certainly I wasn't conscious of that. But then he says, you know, when she came, she loved the show. She was so proud of it. And he, and I, he tells a story about her her saying to him, like, can you believe 
um, all these people who, who, um, oh, I know, she said, I know a lot of, I know a lot of women like that. And he, and he says, my mouth kind of dropped, which says to me that he, he could see in that moment, oh, she has no idea that she's up on stage. She, she can't see that she's Mama Rose, but he could see that, right? Sondheim knew oh, yeah. uh, my mother is, is a rose, uh, it, yeah. you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a darker way in some ways than the actual rose. Um, she, you know, a, a woman who is entirely emotionally dependent on her son, maybe physically dependent on him in a way that kind of messed him up, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, so you, you definitely get the sense that this is a guy who's working out a lot. I mean, you know, Sondheim spends his whole career working on his mommy issues, as I suppose all of us do in a certain way. But yeah, Rose, Rose is a there's there's a there's a there's a mythological quality to her. I mean, she's you know in some ways like people talk about Rose. You know, she's the Oedipus Rex of the of the musical theater canon, right? A woman who can make herself believe anything. Um, yeah. And so what we're getting is you know a, a person who is you know what to a, to a certain degree almost entirely self deluded. She is in her own world, um, and everybody around her can see that. In some ways, that's what makes her a tragic figure. I suppose is that we as an audience can see that she's entirely, you know, I, I think that's what, that's what's so great about everything's coming up roses, right? Her kind of great uh, act one finale number, which is at one level, it's just a big Ethel Merman showpiece. Um, right. but, but Arthur Lawrence and Sondheim talk about, you know, where the horror will come from is because uh, Louise and Herbie are both on stage watching this thing. And Sondheim says, you know, like we, what's important about this number is we see Louise and Herbie watching Ethel Merman perform this thing and being absolutely ashen. Right, like she cannot see how deluded this all is, and yet to a certain degree, it's like, you know, it's like Ethel Mer. Yeah, what, what's interesting about me is like, you know, as soon as that song finishes, the audience bursts into applause. You know, it's like she sells us on it, even though we can see. You know, in some ways, that I think that's the brilliance of Gypsy. It, it's kind of you know throwing throwing up into the light like the the ridiculousness of the whole theatrical enterprise in some ways, right? Like the enlisting the audience in a woman's self-delusion, we applaud, we, you know, we're, we're astounded by it. You know, when a, when a great actor performs it, we, we can't help but cheer for her. And yet it's, it's horrific. What we're being, what we're being invited to applaud and endorse is a kind of horrific nightmare. And Louise and Herbie are the, they're the ones for whom, you know, it's like, you can see how horrified they are by, by this monster. I had a dream, a dream about you, baby. It's gonna come true, baby. They think that we're through, but baby, you
it's fascinating the the name Rose, like so Mama Rose, and it, who sings everything's coming up roses, which Sondheim was thrilled it kind of entered into the vernacular. Yeah, that wasn't that wasn't a time. phrase before Sondheim. He, he invented that idea, right? He invented that. That's it not was a picked thing. up in yeah. the New York Times at one point. Things aren't coming up roses. As I said earlier, it was used by Jack Parr. So we get we get Rose. The clip from Arthur, get, Arthur Lawrence didn't like it, and he said everything's coming up roses, what? <laughs> now the, like, no, 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 nobody's gonna hear that. Nobody's gonna hear everything's coming up roses, something. Right. It's just everything's coming up roses, which of course is how the phrase has ended in the lexicon, yeah. Yeah, and, and everything's coming up roses in the possessive. And then Gypsy, uh, Louise, yeah. when she takes the name Gypsy, she's Gypsy Rose Lee, right? Mm -hmm. She, even though this hugely troubled, fraught relationship with her mother who pushed her in the background while little June got to have the prime of place. And even though, I mean, there's one, there's one way of thinking of Mama Rose as a, as a trafficker, a sex trafficker. Yeah, uh, kind of. Selling kind her daughter of. That's how, into that's how June... Last. Yeah, June. June famously, like you know, hated hated the musical. Didn't like the way that she was treated. They they kind of talked her into, I think, not you know, like actively. I, I think they bought her off. But the story that she would tell is, my mother trafficked me into a marriage when I was thirteen. That's apparently not. She was apparently she was sixteen when she was married. I don't know if that makes it any better. Um, but right. but June's I think lived sense was this woman trafficked me. Um, she she pushed me into into sexual relationships with men far before I was ready for it. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, there's a, oh, it's a, and you know, it's, to a certain degree, it's like, that is the world of vaudeville, you know, it's it, in, the, the, in the scene, I mean, I guess we're now we're kind of moving into the second act here, but that, that scene where uh, Louise and Rose realize they're in a, finally, they are actually in a burlesque theater and Rose is horrified. I, in some ways, I think that's, that's one of the most interesting moments in the whole show for me, how horrified she is of burlesque. Yeah. And maybe this is what we want to talk about. You know, th th there, there is a funny little queer subtext to Mama Rose that Arthur Lawrence was very aware of. It's, it's a story that has not really ever been uh, historically attested, but an indication that at least the family legends around Mama Rose was that she later on in life had mostly relations, sexual relations and romantic relations with women. And that was actually what brought Arthur Lawrence to the story. He didn't want to do the book, but when he was at a, at a party, he met a young woman or met a woman who said, well, my first, my first sexual relationship was with Gypsy Rose Lee's oh. mother. And Arthur Lawrence was so fascinated by Mama Rose. And I mean, kind of, we might say, you know, this, this thwarted queer woman who, you know, was in multiple relationships with men, uh, bore children, seems to have had, and, you know, and I think, you know, th th that scene where they walk into the Bless Theater, Rose is terrified of something. She's, she's horrified of what she might see what her daughters might see, what might be asked of them. And in some ways, that's how I kind of want to read Rose's turn then at the end is this is a woman who is terrified of her body. She's terrified of her sexuality oh, and what it represents. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and is, is there is there not a kind of queer subtext there? I wonder. I think that's really interesting to think about. Um, but in some ways, Rose's turn is her, you know, it's her chance basically to do her own striptease, like to basically finally this this powerful, uh, to a certain degree, liberated woman who is also in some ways trapped by her body is able to, I think, break out into something, own her sexuality in a certain kind of way. Uh, yeah, and, and, and it, goes, it goes real dark, real fast. Yeah. Here she is, boys! Here she is, world! Here's Rose! Curtain off! 
either got it or you ain't. And boys, I got it. You like it? Yeah. Well, I got it. Some people got it and make it pay. Some people can't even give it away. This people's got it and this people's spreading it around. You either have it or you've had it. reading the the lyrics from uh, mama's turn which is you know the great moment for any diva uh yeah. to to sing this it's the thing, it's the which, aria it's the great the great 11 o'clock it's number. the 11 o'clock number uh it's a vaudeville piece in in its own kind of way but you know she sings why did i do it i suppose she's dealing with is she dealing with guilt about pushing louise into burlesque what did it get me? Or is it really her whole life? Um, give them love and what does it get you? One quick look as each of them leaves you all your life and what does it get you? This kind of, uh, I mean, it is a breakdown. It is uh, yeah. on stage for the actor playing Mama Rose. It's her realizing that, I guess, uh, well, no, realizing probably her queerness in a certain kind of way, but also re uh, and I think it's why the show is resilient. There's a sense by the end that she has a, that Mama Rose has the realization that what she's been doing has been destructive. Yeah. And I think then the audience can kind of love her in her, in her guilt and shame even. Oh, yeah, um, boy. I mean, you, when we, when we were talking about this, uh, you know, kind of getting ready, you, you, you talk, I and mean, it's called Rose's Turn, right? That's the yeah. name of the number, which in the Christian tradition, right? Turn is one of the ways that we talk about repentance. And that's actually what metanoia. the Greek word metanoia means. We, we, we yeah. usually translate it as repent, but literally what that means is turn. So I think it's theologically, I think it's really interesting to think about, is this a moment of repentance? Yeah. or not i mean what's going on and, and so much of this i mean the reason why this why it's such a titanic number is that it's you know like it, you, you can perform it in a thousand different i mean there's so much here for a good actor and a good director to to explore um because you know it is such a tour de force she's doing all kinds of things in this number so you can you know some of this really i think really depends on acting choices how you understand this person and what's going on for them but i think you could i think you could understand 
at least parts of Rose's turn as Rose's repentance, as a kind of moment of reckoning for her. What have I done to myself? What have I done to my girls? What have I done to Herbie? Um, what was done to me? I mean, in some ways, like I think the through line for Rose is I don't want anybody to leave me the way my own mother left me. That's the deep psychological wound in Arthur Lawrence's magnificent book of this thing is that this is a woman who was abandoned by her mother at a very early age and that that's the trauma that she continues to live out of. Uh, no one will abandon me. I will always leave them first. That, in some ways, I think that's I think that's Arthur Lawrence's sense of the key to this woman. It's actually not her queerness. It's the fact that she is herself an abandoned daughter. Um, so, you know, mama, mama, over and over in Mama Rose, right? She's, I think, at least that's the way that Bernadette Peters played it and that many other actors have. It's a primal scream. It's a daughter's primal scream. Where's, where's my mom? Where's my mom? Where's my mom? Why did I do it? Why did it get me? Scrapbooks full of me in the background. Give them love and what does it get you? What does it get you? One quick look as each of them leaves you. All your life and what does it get you? Thanks a lot, out with the garbage. They take bows and you're batting zero. I had a dream. I dreamed it for you. It wasn't for me, Herbie. And if it wasn't for me, then where would you be, Miss Gypsy Rosalie? Well, someone tell me, when is it my turn? Don't I get a dream for myself? Starting now, it's gonna be my turn. Gangway world, get off of my runway. Starting now, I bat a thousand. This time, boys, I'm taking the bows. deep wound in this person has then, you know, created this completely dysfunctional family that, you know, that she and June and, and Louise represent. So there, there's all of this kind of stuff around mothers and daughters and abandonment and, um, and loss. It's a song about grief, but I think it is, yeah. it can be a, a song about, um, I don't know, there, I think it's Ben Brantley in one of his reviews talks about the phenomenon of the striptease, right? That like, you know, mm. that in some ways, Gypsy's most interesting striptease, it has nothing to do with taking off clothes, it's characters who are reduced oh, to their most primal and their most good. vulnerable. And that's, and that's what Rose's, I mean, Rose's turn is literally a striptease. It's, it's, it's the chance for her to kind of do Gypsy's number curtain up, light the lights. I mean, she's doing her little, right. but like, it's, it's an emotional strip. It's an that's emotional, what she's, yeah. That's what she's doing. She's being stripped down to her bare essence as a, as a person. Um, there's something horrifying about that. There's something theatrically galvanizing about that for an audience. 
And maybe if there's any if there's any opportunity for redemption for this character, I mean, I think that's where it's got to start. It's it's a moment of realization and honesty. This is what um, this is what I have done. This is what has been done to me, and I th- this can't continue. This 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 way of being in the world cannot continue. Although, yeah, I mean, I agree. Except at the very end, the last the last dialogue between uh, Louise and Rose where Louise gives her a mink stole, invites her to come to a cocktail party with her. And the, the, the last lines, Rose says, you know, I had a dream last night. There was a big poster of a mother and daughter, like the covers of ladies' magazines. And Gypsy says, yeah, mama. I said, only it was you and me wearing exactly the same gowns. It was an ad for Minsky. And the headline said, and this is the very last line of the play, Mama Rose and her daughter, Gypsy. So what's happening there? Like, I wonder if in one way, at the end, Mama has accepted and adopted the transformed Louise into being the person that she is now. Because she struggled with that all along. So, but she's still a megalomaniac. I mean, her fantasy, her dream is still... Mama Rose first and her daughter Gypsy. Right? Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, in some ways, like, you know, yeah. So at that level, no, it's not um, it's not gospel redemption. Although what a human, I mean, I, I guess what I what I love about and here again, it so much depends on how you stage it, right? I mean, this, you know, I, I think of the direction I saw Laura Benanti walked off stage laughing and Patty Lapone, you know, grasped once more at the at the life, and you got the sense of like, oh no, she really ha- actually hasn't really changed. Um, but isn't that isn't that true? I mean, even yeah. even those of you know, like we we repent, we try our best to to live up to what we think you know might be, but not like we're stuck in our own bodies and our own psychologies. I mean, you know, it's like the best. I feel like the best kind of honest repentance on offer for any of us is making lemonade out of the lemons we're handed by our parents and our grandparents and the world we grew up. I mean, in some ways, this might be the most honest image of a kind of repentance for this particular character that we can hope for. She's not, she's not going to become right. a good mother. She can't yeah. be. I think, I think there can be a kind of adult uh, relationship with some better boundaries between her and Louise. I think that's what each of us hope for with our parents, um, that we can become adults together, knowing that it's always going to, you know, it's always going to be complicated. And it, you know, at a certain point, you know, I think that's what we see in that moment, right? That basically we see Louise mothering, Rose. I think I think I think the line, you know, she she says mama mama and then she says, I think she's she says Rose. It's okay, Rose. She calls her by her name for the first time. I think that's so critical, right? She's moving outside of the role of the daughter who's never good enough and is, you know, fighting to be seen by her mother, to realizing my mother no longer needs a daughter. My mother needs a mother. I can't be that mother, but I can be a person here and hold this person and call her by her name. I mean, so wait, this, this is, you know, this is, this is pretty kingdom of God, right? Like she, yeah. she calls Rose by her name um, and holds, holds the, the whole person of, of Rose for a moment before she, you know, walks off stage to the next party and leaves Rose alone. And, oh. and Louise and, 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 and Mama Rose calls Louise by her baptized name, if you want to yeah, see there you go. her it's, entrance yes, it's into burlesque as a baptism. She has a new identity, a new name, and her yeah. mother recognizes, number one, she's not the daughter that she wanted to succeed, uh, that she wanted to be the agent of her success. 
And number two, it's not the success that she had imagined. But it is this new identity that has emerged and there's a respect. Yeah, I think so. And maybe even a sense of identification. I mean, I think we can all see as an audience, the whole, I mean, Gypsy Rose Lee is entirely a creation of Rose. Yeah, I mean, everything that Gypsy is able to be is a direct result of her mother. Uh, Watching her mother struggle, uh, watching her mother struggle as a woman of her generation, and then, you know, finding her own way to be a, to be a woman in a very different kind of, I mean, in some ways, this is the death of vaudeville and the kind of, you know, the beginnings of something else. Um, so I, I think, I think Louise is to a certain degree is aware of that, right? Everything I am is because of what my mother taught me through example, through actual instruction, and then also through, I mean, the fable aspect of it, right? Through negative example, through, I don't want ever to be in a position where, you know, X, Y, Z things should be true. Um, so there is well, some there is some identification here, but in some way, I mean, like Gypsy Rose Lee is Rose's greatest creation. I mean, if there you know if there's anything that she should be proud of, it's this incredible woman that that Louise has become. Yeah. So I wonder, just back to your first question around the queerness of this fable. You and I are both gay men who had the conversation with our parents when we came out, yeah. and we had that moment where mom and dad had to realize that the Nathan that they thought was going to be living in the world for you, the Peter that my parents had thought was going to live in the world, that image that the parents, our parents had of us had to die. And they, and I think both of us are very fortunate in that uh, your parents and my parents were both able to move through that journey of grief into an acceptance of okay, Nathan, Nathan is a beautiful person in who Nathan is. And we love him, not as we had wanted him to be or fantasized. And similarly for me, you know, Peter, Peter isn't going to be who we thought he might be. He's something different. And we love that person in him. Mm-hmm. You and I both have that part of our, of our lives. And so many gay men don't. Uh, particularly yeah. of earlier generations of Sondheim and Lawrence generations, that was not at all their experience. So I just wondered, as you were yeah. describing this, this recognition and this last after her breakdown, mm-hmm. whether it's a journey of grief. Yeah, Rose is grieving so much in that final number, right? She's grieving the death of her dreams for her daughter, the death of her own dreams for herself. I mean, it, it, there, we haven't really talked about the whole kind of death of vaudeville trope, you know, that's like, you know, it's like she's she's the last gasp of a whole world that has basically ended. Um, there's, so what what is her place? I mean, I think there's, you know, there's a lot, of, you know, who, who will take care of her? Who, who is she gonna be? Is she gonna just, you know, go and continue to teach other little girls how to do this thing? Which she says like, no, I'm, you know, like, so it, I, think, I think you're right. There's a, there's a lot of grief happening for Rose. You know, and the ending is very ambiguous. Does she, is she, are she and Louise going to be able to move through this or not? I, I, I don't know that that, and in some ways, like, you know, of course, of course it would end that way. That's, that feels very honest to the characters. That feels very honest to Arthur Lawrence and Stephen Sondheim and where, you know, as you say, the kind of their own relationships with their parents and what they're seeing in their world. Yeah, I, you know, you and I have had a different relationship with our parents. And yet my sense is like, there is always so much grief in, yes. um, in that passing of the generation, I mean, how can how can there fail to be? Um, we, we there's there's grief in in all of our human relationships. I think as we you know we 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 end up create we we use one another for our own you know kind of projections and our own psychological work and 
sometimes, you know, those, 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 those false pretenses come falling. Down. I mean, I think that, you know, that, that's the, that's been the promise of the church, I think, as you and I have sought to uh, articulate it and, and embody it is this is one place where we can actually be the people God has created us to be, because generally our families don't let us do that. Our institutions don't let us do that. I mean, God knows the church has not historically let us do that. Um, still isn't great at it, but maybe we can get better at it. Theater is one of the places, I think, where we as queer men have found avenues for being able to express a fuller version of ourselves. And I think that's that's probably my best argument as to why this show is so compelling for so many yeah. gay men. I think I think we're watching something play out. At that level, I think it is a fable. Um, it's what we fear will happen when we are honest about who we are with our parents. To a certain degree, it's a, it's a kind of longing for what might be possible. And then I think also a way for us to identify emotionally with the experience of our parents, um, yeah. knowing the, the profound grief that comes along with being on the other side of the coming out conversation. Yeah. Um, that it's, it's, our best, it's our best chance at empathy for people whom we adore, love, who you know we struggle with sometimes but you know like what what better what more a cathartic experience for a room full of damaged sons and daughters than to watch that that final rose's turn be astounded by the performance of the actor embodying that role burst into applause at the end of it i mean sondheim talks about right like it was actually oscar hammerstein his own father figure who said you gotta give ethel merman her big applause at the end he wanted it to kind of end much more diffusely and the audience was kind of shocked they didn't know whether to applaud or not and oscar hammerstein said no 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 no. it's ethel merman it's her 11 o'clock number the audience has to applaud they need that catharsis because otherwise they're not paying attention to that last conversation between rose and louise they miss the whole thing because they're waiting for their applause number but if you let the audience applaud cheer on their feet for rose at the end of rose's turn it both gives us the catharsis that we need right Right, of identifying with this character, but also then it um, it uh, enlists us in the, her fantasy. I mean, that, that was the way that Patti LuPone played it, right? Like she took yeah. that curtain call. She was bowing to it until the applause died out and it was only Laura Benanti as her daughter, only, you know, so it's like, right. we are we are complicit in this world. We yeah, are usually, the ones who have- and, and usually the Mother Rose continues to bow after the yep. applause has died down which yeah. is so tragic, you know? Yeah. So just to comment in terms of Sondheim on yet again, early on in his career, breaking through to a new kind of musical theater. This is a long way from the Trap family singers escaping over the Alps, stand up in Munich as it would turn out. But, you know, where there is some sense of a happy ever after there, this is uh, this is Lear as as it's yeah. called so often. This is a this is musical theater that doesn't leave you. It leaves you asking more questions, just as we've done in this conversation. Isn't it fascinating about parents, about kids, about identity, about show business, about sexuality? It engenders the conversation over the drinks at Sardi's after, uh, rather than saying. <laughs> wasn't that a nice night out? Aren't we feeling great? You know, Um, it generates, it generates conversation and controversy. It's a difficult, it's a difficult. It is. I mean, yeah, I I think critics regard it as maybe, maybe the apotheosis of the, you know, the kind of the the Hammerstein, Roger Hammerstein project, right? The the kind of best example of the integrated, I mean, it's, it's probably the best book of any Broadway musical in the 20th century. Arthur Lawrence's book to Gypsy is, I mean, do you think about how much of the 
of the heavy lifting of the story comes in the dialogue scenes. I mean, the songs are amazing, yeah. but those scenes are incredible. And that's because Arthur Lawrence wrote an incredible play that happened to have some music in it. So yeah, as a, as a piece of theater, it is, I think, kind of, you know, in the musical theater canon, kind of one of our big, you know, it's, it's almost Shakespearean in its scope. And also, yeah, you know, I, I think you and I kind of both like, it's a hard show to, I don't love Gypsy. I I, I'm, Gypsy. An, I'm in awe of Gypsy. I will, I'll, you know, it's like if I'll, I'll collect my divas, you know, it's like anytime, you know, great <laughs> Patty, Bernadette, you know, I, I, I think about, you know, who's, who's, who's up and like, you know, I, I long to see Laura Benanti in this role someday. I saw her as Louise. I want to see her as, as Mama Rose someday. Um, like I'll continue to go see the great women of our, of my generation, take a, take a, uh, take a crack at the kind of in the way that you, you know, you want to see every great male actor play Lear, play Hamlet, play, right. uh, you know, like it, it's one of those roles. It's like hearing a great opera singer do Norma, you know, it's like, I don't, right. I don't love that show, but I'll go here. I'll go here, Joan Sutherland or, you know, whoever's kind of the, the newest flavor of the month, take a crack at those arias. It's an amazing piece of art. And, and emotionally it does, as I, you know, as, as we've talked about, right? Like it does tap into something really primal. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a cathartic moment, but in a way that, as you say, leaves me uh, pretty unsettled once the, once the house lights come back on. And, and I suppose that's probably what it's designed to do. It's early postmodernism, really. It's yeah. taking, a, taking a real life story, just the kind of meta levels of it. So it's a real person, her autobiography, made into a fable and then put on the stage and let the audiences make of it what they will. It's not a happy ending, but man, it's a engaging piece of musical theater. Yay, Stephen Sondheim. Yeah. I, and there are, I mean, I, I will, and maybe this is, you know, we, where, where is God in this material? I mean, always kind of our question. I, I do love Gotta Have a Gimmick. I think that is, I mean, oh, good. I, part, yeah. of that, part of that's theatrical, right? It, it, you know, it's sort of the, it's the second act uh, fun novelty number that kind of takes you out of the pretty unremitting darkness of the second act. Um, I also think that that's, you know, if, if, there's a, if there's a bid for some kind of kingdom of God moment in Gypsy, I think it's got to have a gimmick. I, I remember watching, uh, there was a, a tribute show to Cameron McIntosh, a concert version where Bernadette Peters and... Uh, Oh, what's the the great British um, the British British actor? Uh, I, her name has gone out of my of my head. Oh, Julia something, um, and Ruthie Henshaw doing "Gotta Have a Gimmick" as a concert piece. And then at the Fabulous. end of the you know they were they were the three strippers right, kind of you know doing the and they were amazing. And then at the end of the show, the whole cast of women kind of came on stage and did the final right, like uh, you got to have a gimmick. Take a look how different we are. And I remember nice. thinking like, right, this is like, it's a celebration of queerness. It's a celebration of diversity. It's a celebration of women's bodies in all the different ways and sizes and shapes. You know, and usually it's like, you know, it's three kind of middle-aged to elderly, you know? So it's like, they're glorying in their, you know, they're, they're shaking flesh, you know? It's like, it's, it's women who are not uh, seen as conventionally attractive, glorying in their sexuality. Take a look how different we are. If you got a gimmick, you can be a star. And there is something, I mean, at a certain level, that's show business, but at a certain, I don't know, like, I love that image of empowerment and freedom and um, an embrace of something so beautiful that's just pure fun. And when it's three actors who know what they're doing with that number, it is, um, it's astounding. I, I, love I agree. That
And each person has a particular, you know, I'm coming to Paul, there are a variety of gifts, but yeah. the same spirit, right? There's, you could you uh, could translate gift as gimmick, right? There are a variety yeah. of gimmicks, but the same spirit. I think that's actually a really good way to think about it. They've, you know, these are women who have been gifted with them. Yeah, they're 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 working what they got. I mean, that's that's Mama Rose, isn't it? Like that's all that we can, I think any of us can hope for. We we gotta work what we got. Uh we're given a whole bag of <laughs> bullshit to, to deal with. Uh so Gosh, figure out a way to make me. it work for you. You're helping me contextualize a moment. Uh, I think I've mentioned uh, uh, probably a couple decades ago, I was part of a project of putting on three nights of Sondheim at Christchurch Cathedral when I was dean, um, bringing the acting community in, asking everybody to do their party pieces, filled the church uh, three nights. It was a really fun, crazy project. I don't know what we were thinking of, like it was out, out. Anyway, when we, one of the songs, uh, the, the, the conceit was that the actors in town could choose a fame, a Sondheim song and prepare it and do it. And so three women chose, you got to have a gimmick. Uh, so there they <laughs> a were. A dangerous song to do in church. A dangerous <laughs> song at the church. Uh -huh. um, so there they were on the platform doing it really well. Uh, and my husband, Thomas, was running the lighting board. And all of a sudden, the lights were flashing like at a burlesque show, like he did the he did the whole tech piece, and it I mean the place went crazy, uh, yeah. and, and so so you have just helped me contextualize that moment in church where three actors, uh, fabulous women, were singing "Got to Have a Gimmick." The lights are gone. The cathedral was a burlesque theater for one yeah. brief shining moment. It was a bit of a yeah. Camelot moment, but here it is celebrating the diversity of gifts of the whole people of God, you know, um, in a sideways, weird, unconventional mm -hmm. way. They're almost, there I mean, it if, is. if we're going to, I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but they're almost sort of like, they're the three kings at the manger, aren't they? <laughs> Bringing that, you know, it's like, it could be a trumpet and a light up bra. And I forget what the, oh, the, the butterfly wings that, that Tessie Tura has got, you know that may as well be frankincense, gold and myrrh, right? Like those are the gifts they're bringing the Christ child. And it's like, if, you know, in the context of that number, it's like, you, you sort of get the sense of like, at least as an audience, we are glorying in this. So must God. I mean, like what, what a beautiful image of uh, using the best that you've got that maybe the world, you know, shames you for taking that to the manger. That's your gift. That's what you have to offer the divine. Um, it's your gimmick. And if you can make it work for you, like, there's the spiritual life in a nutshell, as far as I'm concerned. I, I just think that's such a great moment. I don't think there's anything else we can say about Gypsy after that. <laughs> I yeah. never thought I'd be part of a conversation that had a connection between uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and you gotta have a gimmick. <laughs> and but the world you of burlesque in 1940. <laughs> well, there you go. There, the gospel shows up in all kinds of interesting places. Uh, Christ plays in 10,000 places and, and that, no, no less so than uh, on the stage of any theater where Gypsy happens to be being mounted once again. Thank God for Gypsy. Sing out, Louise. Sing out, Louise. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time. The Gospel of Musical Theatre is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. 
Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time.